Our scripture reading this morning is taken from Matthew 7. We turn to Matthew chapter 7. We read the entire chapter. We hear the inspired word of God. Judge not that ye be not judged. For with what judgment ye judge, ye shall be judged. And with what measure ye meet, it shall be measured to you again. And why beholdest thou the mote that is in thy brother's eye, but considereth not the beam that is in thine own eye? Or how wilt thou say to thy brother, Let me pull out the mote out of thine eye, and behold, a beam is in thine own eye? Thou hypocrite, first cast out the beam out of thine own eye, and then shalt thou see clearly to cast out the mote out of thy brother's eye. Give not that which is holy unto the dogs, neither cast ye your pearls before swine lest they trample them under their feet and turn again and rend you. Ask, and it shall be given you. Seek, and ye shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. For everyone that asketh receiveth, and he that seeketh findeth. And to him that knocketh it shall be opened. Or what man is there of you whom if his son ask bread, Will he give him a stone? Or if he ask a fish, will he give him a serpent? If ye then, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your Father, which is in heaven, give good things to them that ask him? Therefore all things whatsoever ye would that men should do to you, do even so to them." For this is the law and the prophets. Enter ye in at the straight gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction, and many there be which go in thereat. Because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. Beware of false prophets which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly They are ravening wolves. Ye shall know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes of thorns or figs of thistles? Even so, every good tree bringeth forth good fruit, but a corrupt tree bringeth forth evil fruit. A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. Every tree that bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. Wherefore, by their fruits ye shall know them. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father, which is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name, and in thy name have cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works, and then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. 
Therefore, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them, I will liken him unto a wise man which built his house upon a rock. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat upon that house, and it fell not, for it was founded upon a rock. And every one that heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them not shall be likened unto a foolish man which built his house upon the sand. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat upon that house, and it fell. And great was the fall of it. And it came to pass, when Jesus had ended these sayings, the people were astonished at his doctrine. For he taught them as one having authority, and not as the scribes. We read God's word that far. May God bless his word to our hearts. On the basis of this passage, especially the references between verses 15 and 20 of the fruit by which God knows us, we turn to Lord's Day 32, page 19 in the back of our Psalters. Lord's Day 32, question and answers 86 and 87. Question 86, since then we are delivered from our misery merely of grace through Christ without any merit of ours. Why must we still do good works? Because Christ, having redeemed and delivered us by his blood, also renews us by his Holy Spirit after his own image, that so we may testify by the whole of our conduct our gratitude to God for his blessing and that he may be praised by us. Also, that everyone may may be assured in himself of his faith by the fruits thereof, and that by our godly conversation others may be gained to Christ. Cannot they then be saved who, continuing in their wicked and ungrateful lives, are not converted to God? By no means. For the Holy Scripture declares that no unchaste person, idolater, adulterer, thief, covetous man, drunkard, slanderer, robber, or any such like shall inherit the kingdom of God. Beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ, the first question of this Lord's Day reminds us of the three main questions or sections of the Heidelberg Catechism. Delivered from our misery, through Christ, good works. And we have there really the threefold sections of the Heidelberg Catechism. We need to know our misery so that we know the wonder of our deliverance in Jesus Christ alone. And the fruit of that is thankfulness. The gratitude that we will and must show to Jehovah God. Our misery is revealed in our sins, our deliverance in Jesus Christ, a wonder of God's grace, and then our thankfulness now is that which is our focus in the upcoming Lord's Days. The first part of the answer really sums up everything we've learned in the Catechism this far. The second part of the question gives the three main reasons for doing good works which relate to God, ourselves, and those around us. 
Now, Jesus said in the passage that we read, by their fruits ye shall know them. Verse 20. The fruit of the knowledge of my misery and the wonder of my deliverance is going to be evident in my life. And it's going to be an exultant song. It's going to be that by which I live my life with this confession on my lips. I am redeemed. I have been delivered from the bondage of sin and death. God has done great things for me. And it's impossible for that one who confesses the horror of his sin, the wonder of the deliverance in Jesus Christ, not to live out of that glorious confession. And not only will my tongue reflect it, my whole life is going to give evidence of that wonder of God's goodness and God's mercy. That Jehovah God has worked a wonder in my heart. And as a result, I now live unto him. And I seek to show thankfulness in everything I do. The author of the catechism here understands this wonder of God. And therefore it says, why must we still do good works? There must be words and there must be actions that flow out of those words that give evidence of this wonder of grace. That Jehovah God has taken hold of me. He's captivated me by a wonder of his grace. And the whole direction of my life now is different than that which it previously had been. Now I live unto him. Matthew emphasizes here that point in the analogy that he uses with regard to trees and their fruit. And we see that analogy picked up and used also in our confessions. Good fruit from good trees we take as our theme. Noting the changed trees the fruit that is unto God, and finally, the fruit that is for us and others. Dividing up the three different aspects of that fruit that's spoken of here in Lord's Day 32. The tree is changed, and that's the emphasis here of Matthew 7. Jehovah God has performed a wonder. We are compared to trees, And now we've been changed. And so the question is asked, why must we still do good works? And the reason for that question is this. There are some who would be satisfied with just the first two sections of the Heidelberg Catechism. We're done. We don't need to say anything more. They would say, we have have enough. We know our misery. We know that we've been redeemed by Jesus Christ. And it doesn't matter now how we live. Because after all, the whole of our life is that which is going to be in Christ, and we've been saved by grace, and therefore it doesn't matter. They would even accuse us of bringing man back into bondage, in a sense, by saying, why would you bring the law back up again? The law was treated with regard to our misery. We saw the seriousness of our misery. And now, by teaching the law again, and the need of obedience, what you're doing is you're trying to bring men and women back into bondage to misery by teaching the necessity of obedience to the law. Christ redeemed us, they say. We don't have to worry about the law no more. We don't have to worry about anything that we have to do or that we ought to do. And so they don't want anything to do with the third section of the Heidelberg Catechism. And we find that You'll find commentaries that are outstanding on the first and second sections of the catechism and they get to the third and they really don't know what to do. They really don't know how to make application of it. 
There are those who become confused as a result. The Reformed churches, they always teach salvation by grace alone. And now all of a sudden they're talking about the necessity of good works. They're talking about the fact that we have to obey and we have to keep God's commandments. And they're talking about the law. They don't understand the difference between holiness and a work holiness. Righteousness and a works righteousness. They think that good works and the works of the law are identical. God and his word and the catechism carefully and clearly distinguish the two. We are saved by grace alone, apart from works. The fruit of our salvation is that now we abound in works pleasing to God. Those works in no way serving as the foundation or the ground of our salvation... But those works, the fruit of God's wonder of grace within us. And it's for that reason that the catechism opens with a very wise and a very important discussion. The sinner who's saved from his misery, all of Christ, who's been translated from death to life, who by a living faith has been engrafted into Jesus Christ and a partaker of all of the blessings of salvation, that's the one talking now. And concerning that one, the question is, why must that one still do good works? And again, the antinomians scorn it. They say, there's no place for good works. We're saved by grace. The Roman Catholic Church, on the other extreme, stresses that you need to walk in those good works because that's the only way you can earn your salvation. And the reform now emphasize the importance of good works as thankfulness. This isn't the way you got saved. You got saved by grace through Jesus Christ alone. This is the way of gratitude. Good works are the necessary fruit of our salvation. We don't do good works to get saved. God saves us. And because of the marvelous character and nature of that salvation, we abound in works that are pleasing to him. Notice the blessedness of which the catechism here is speaking. The blessedness of this one who knows the wonder of salvation and now desires to live unto God according to all good works. And that blessedness is such. We were evil trees, but God has changed us and God has transformed us. We were trees that according to the storm of God's wrath were cast off to hell, left to die, gnarled in sin and misery, Due to their corruption of no value. Could bring forth no fruit that would be good. A corrupt tree bringeth forth evil fruit. We read here in verse 17. Titus 3 refers to this in verse 3. For we ourselves also were sometimes foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving diverse lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But what did God do? By a marvelous wonder and transformation of God, these trees were translated from death to life. All a wonder of God. God brought about a wonder so marvelous that it's unequaled in the realm of nature. And that's where every analogy falls apart. And so also this analogy. How is it that an evil tree can somehow be transformed now to be a good tree? 
But that's what Jehovah God did in our lives. He took us from death and he brought us into life. Our eyes are opened. We are made to see the perilous state that we find ourselves in by nature. And we're brought to see the wonder of God's transforming work in our lives. And that change is according to the Holy Spirit, as we've seen in the preceding Lord's days. He regenerated. He quickened. He made alive. And the implication is we were dead. He took that which was dead, and he now gave life to it by a marvelous wonder of his grace. So that the heart of the sinner is now renewed. His will is now inclined to God. And all of his affections now are directed to the glory of God. He has a sincere sorrow for sin. He has a desire to do what's right and pleasing before God. And that new life that's from above, the life of Jesus Christ, is the life now that governs and directs his or her life. And so the result is there's new goals, there's new desires, there's new longings. There's a whole new expression of life that now comes for that individual. And the reference here to the fruit has to be both the good teaching and instruction now that comes from our lips, as well as good actions and good conduct that flow out of our lives. And that's evident from the context here where he's speaking of false prophets. He's talking about their teaching and the fact that their teaching is such that it's corrupt. And now, having been transformed, our teaching is that now which is in accordance with God's will and God's word. But also, our actions and our conduct, a life of obedience, flows from that wonder of God's grace. The third and fourth heads of doctrine of the Canons of Dort, found on the front page of the handout, Article 11, emphasizes in the last part this wonder, using this analogy, the fact that God infuses new qualities into the will, which... Though heretofore dead, he quickens from being evil, disobedient, and refractory. He renders it good, obedient, and pliable, actuates and strengthens it, that like a good tree, it may bring forth the fruits of good actions. A tree now that's rooted in Jesus Christ, in God's eternal good pleasure. And the life of that tree is the life of Christ now that's flowing within it. And it's giving expression now through the wonder that the fruit that it bears is fruit to the glory and honor of God. The good tree brings forth good fruit. That's the transformation that we've confessed through the past Lord's days, summarized in Ephesians 2 verse 1. And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. Now there's a threat that we have to be aware of in that regard. And the threat has to do with this. There's a temptation to separate that internal change from outward activity. So that we believe Jesus came and he redeemed me in order to bring me to heaven, but there doesn't need to be any indication really, or there's not going to be maybe any fruit of that in the meantime. What's important is that he's delivered me and that I now am on the pathway to heaven. And the fact that he saves from the power and influence of sin, and that already now in my life, he's working holiness and sanctification is minimized. And so people confess Christ as their Lord, but there's no change in their lives. 
If Jesus is your Lord, then that must be evident in the fact that you submit to him and you demonstrate it in your walk and your conduct. And so they confess Jesus as Lord. They confess a wonder by which they've been converted, but there's no change. They're still hanging with the same friends. They're still doing the same activities that they always did, except now they come to church. The Catechism stresses that's not the fruit of the wonder of God's grace in the hearts of his children. Jesus not only redeemed us, not only paid for us by his blood, but he now renews us according to his Holy Spirit after his own image. And that renewing of the heart is the work of God's grace within us. He makes us after him, righteous, holy, pursuing the true knowledge of Jehovah. Now this is a life's work. We're renewed in his image. It's completely God's work. And it's a work at the same time in which we are active and we are busy. He works in us so that we give our all to him. Our whole life directed every aspect of it as we confess. I'm not my own. I belong. Body and soul to Jesus Christ. He bought me. And now the life that I live isn't mine. It's his. So that that work of Jesus Christ within us results in a response. Christ breaks down our selfishness. He breaks down our lusts and our pleasures and our desire and delight in the pursuit of our own things. Me first. I want is the way that we would conduct ourselves of ourselves. And now God calls us, no, be holy, for I am holy. And holiness is the response now of the regenerated heart to the work of God's grace. And that holiness shows itself in separation from sin and consecration to God. I'm aware of sin. I flee it. I seek to keep myself away from that way of temptation. And I desire now to live unto him and to show forth his praise. And God works in us that desire not only, but then the blessed assurance that in Christ I can do all things. We're able to delight in the commandments of God. David repeatedly in the Psalms speaks of that delight, that joy. And it's striking, isn't it? That's already in the Old Testament. So that it's even before Jesus died on the cross, it's before Jesus poured out his spirit and lives in the hearts of his children as we are privileged to know and to believe. But David knew that delight, that joy, able to keep God's commandments, desiring to pursue them, even though knowing and confessing that he was unworthy. That obedience was but a small beginning, but it was his delight. And it was that which he pursued. God's commandments are not burdensome. Those commandments are for us a delight. Now Paul expresses the radical transformation here that was taking place in the early church. And it's something that's hard for us to relate to. We don't regularly interact with those who were converted at a later age and experience the radical transformation that the early church experienced among those who were converts. But Paul talks about that in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 11. And such were some of you, but ye are washed, but ye are sanctified, but ye are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. 
He's talking about the grossest sins that were prevalent in the society and culture of the Romans and Greeks. Such were some of you, but ye are washed, ye are sanctified, ye are justified. A homosexual washed of his sin, made holy by the Holy Spirit, doesn't remain a homosexual. That one now fights those urges and fights those temptations in order to live obediently before God. A drunkard given over to alcohol, washed by his sin, made holy by the Holy Spirit, doesn't continue in his alcohol. He looks to God and he now lives a life of soberness and dependence upon God. A child molester, washed and cleansed by the wonder of God's grace and his Holy Spirit, now doesn't continue in that sin. An adulterer who's washed of his sin, who's made holy, does battle now against that sin and seeks to maintain that walk of purity and godliness. He turns and he walks in the assurance of forgiveness. Such were some of you, Paul says, but the Holy Spirit took hold of you The Holy Spirit worked a transformation that you weren't capable of performing of yourself, and you know it. And now what is the fruit? The fruit is unspeakable joy. I know that I was enslaved to sin. I was on the road to hell, and Jehovah God took hold of me, and he turned me. And not because of anything of myself, not because I was worthy or deserving, not because of anything that I earned, a wonder of God's grace. And now, as one who's been so transformed, Jesus says, ye shall know them by their fruits. How do we know who has the Holy Spirit, who doesn't? How do we know who abides in Christ and has united to Christ and who isn't? The Holy Scriptures declare that no unchaste person, idolater, adulterer, thief, covetous man, drunkard, slander, robber, or any such like shall inherit the kingdom of God. And the reference there is not to the fact that they fell into those sins and then repented, of course. The idea is those who continue to walk in those sins without repentance face God's judgment. They're on the road to hell. There's no hope for them. They're an evil tree, and by their actions they continue to show evidence of that sinfulness and of that evil. They practice that sin. They're doing it deliberately, they're doing it consciously, and they're even going to great lengths to cover their sins. They're lying about it, they're not confessing it. They are not living as those who hate sin. They're not fleeing sin. They don't confess their sin and pray for the grace to overcome it. Those who continue to walk in sin will not enter the kingdom of God. That's the clear warning. Those who love sin continue to practice it daily in their lives and will not turn from it face God's judgment. They're outside the kingdom. Verse 21, not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. God's children with a new beginning of that obedience, walk in holiness. Now, we're not going to do it perfectly. We know that. But evidence will be there 
of repentance, true sorrow, and a desire to live unto God and to glorify Him. Verse 18 is a difficult verse at times to understand. A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. And the point is not to minimize the fact that God's children continue to sin, but again, the analogy there falls, falls apart in a sense. The point being that Jehovah God, who's given that good wonder of grace, will work now positive fruit. And their teaching and their life now will flow out of that good. And it will be evident by faith. As young people, knowing the power of God's grace in your heart, you not only desire to walk in a manner that reflects purity and holiness, you do it by God's grace. You confess your lusts and you confess your sins and you look to Him for strength and you trust He's the one who will preserve you in that chastity and that holiness. As Christians, we keep ourselves from adultery, from fornication, for Christ's sake. We keep ourselves from the ungodly activities of the world. The world is constantly threatening us. Come, join us. Let's go do this. Let's do that. By God's grace, we stand. And we withstand. And we say, no. Though in the past, that would have had an appeal. Now I know that if I walk in that way, there's going to be guilt. There's going to be shame. That is contrary to the love that I have for my God. And I do not desire to bring shame and dishonor to his name. I love him, and I want to live unto him. And so when I sin, as I still will do, I'm going to confess that sin. I'm going to be filled with grief concerning it. And God will use that grief and that sorrow to work in me that conviction to do all things for his glory and to strengthen me in Jesus Christ. And in all of this, we know there's no room for boasting. This is the wonder of God's grace. And that's something that Belgic Confession, Article 24, stresses. Talking about sanctification and good works. These works, as they proceed from the good root of faith, are good. They're acceptable in the sight of God, for as much as they're all sanctified by His grace. However, they're of no account toward our justification. For it's by faith in Christ that we're justified, even before we do good works. Otherwise, they could not be good works. Any more than the fruit of a tree can be good before the tree itself is good. God had to make the tree good. God had to transform me. And now the fruit of it is what's evident, for which I can't take any credit. There's no room for boasting. It's not in me, by nature, to live a new and holy life. I would not do good of myself, but it's only because of Christ and my union to Jesus Christ. The Westminster Confession, also in the handout, stresses that. In Article 2, it talks about the fact that these are the fruits and evidences of true and lively faith. Why is it that I walk with this desire? Because of faith, the bond that unites me to Christ. And then the third chapter, their ability to do good works is not at all of themselves, but wholly from the Spirit of Jesus Christ. That's our confession. This is not my work. God is the one who ordained me to be his workmanship, living my life out of Christ. Without exception, 
every good work is God's work in and through me. Before ordained that I would walk in, according to Ephesians 2, verses 8 through 10. So that all the boasting is to God. God has ordained such a wonder that he's delivered me from the bondage of sin. He's given me new life, and now he strengthens me to live unto him. By nature, I would never do so. But by grace, I now pursue his will and his way. Now, the Catechism elaborates on that wonder by expressing three different aspects of that fruit. First of all, the fruit that is for God, that so we may testify by the whole of our conduct our gratitude to God for his blessings and that he may be praised by us. God created us to show forth his praise. Our fallen Adam corrupted that made it impossible. In Christ, God renews us unto that glorious goal. God never forces man to do something that he doesn't want to do. The thoughts, the actions of a man are his own. God now works this wonder by his spirit that he now works in us so that we want to do it. We want to do that which is pleasing to him. He works in us the desire to praise him and to glorify him. Now, this is a mystery. This is a wonder how he does this. The Spirit of God working repentance, working faith in our hearts, giving us to know all the commandments, to delight in them. The Spirit of God convicting our conscience, binding the responsibility of every man on his own heart. God working this wonder so that we will and do according to to his good pleasure. He works in us that desire and he works in us the doing according to Philippians 2 verses 12 and 13. God's the one who establishes that covenant of grace with us. He doesn't do it in any way dependent upon us. It's unconditionally established. He's the one now who makes that covenant and that relationship fruitful in our lives. Not basing it on any condition that we have to fulfill. Not basing it on anything that we're required to perform a wonder of God's grace. And that's where it's important for us to note that the third part of the catechism stands in relation to God the same as the first part. The first part, how do we know our sin? It's only going to be that God convicts us. How do I know my deliverance? is all God's work. And so it is with the third section. It's all God's work. So that this is God's part of his covenant. It's all the fruit of God's work of grace in our lives. It's not such that God works the conviction, that God then gives the deliverance, and now we are the ones who work the fruit. It's all God's work. And the Spirit of God is the one that's at work in our lives. Working out His covenant faithfulness according to His sovereign eternal decree through grace by the Word working in us to do his good pleasure. Now, this doesn't mean, again, that he makes us do things against our will. He works in us the will. He works in us the desire and the motivation so that we serve him and we seek him. What does God do? God makes it so that we love him. We love him. If we love our parents, we want to please them. We love God. And because we love God, we want to do his will. We desire to please him. We hunger after him. We thirst after him. And the Christian then, 
is one who desires to do what God wants us to do. We're zealous to do good works that God might be praised in our lives so that the obligation of obedience becomes a privilege. God commands us to do it, but God works in us the joy and the delight and the possibility of it through Jesus Christ. So that when I hear the law, it's not merely a must, but that must is translated into a desire. And that desire becomes, I can do all things through Christ, who is my strength. God created us to show forth his praise. And he gives us the outstanding privilege of being able to do so by the work of his spirit within us. God wants to hear us tell him how great he is, how gracious he is, how merciful he is, how beautiful he is. God wants to be acknowledged with all the praise that we can direct to him. And he realizes that while we're in this life, it's still tainted because of sin. But we look forward to the day when we can give him all that praise and all that glory without sin in the new heaven and earth. The angels are glorifying God day and night in what they do and say. But God creates the church of Jesus Christ in a way that because of sin and grace, they will be equipped to glorify God even to a higher measure. And they will do so to all eternity. Why do we exist? To glorify Jehovah God. And so the Christian has been delivered from his depravity. He's been given the victory that is in Jesus Christ alone so that he can show forth the praise of Jehovah God. The living principle of his life is no longer, I'm depraved. The living principle now is, I'm a new creature in Christ. I've been redeemed. And now I desire to live unto him and to show forth his praise. Now that evil nature again remains till we die, but that doesn't control the Christian. We can say the Christian now, by God's grace, is capable of doing good because of the wonder of that new life that's within him. The Christian is prone to do that which is pleasing in God's sight. He desires it. He wants to because that new life of Christ now controls and directs the whole of his life. And so he fights against sin. He resists the devil. And he seeks to walk a new and holy life before God. Now that praise is going to be seen in your and my lives in a lot of different ways. We praise God when we come to him in prayer. Prayer being a response to the word. We hear God's word, we read his promises, and we respond in prayer. And that's why the catechism treats prayer as the chief part of thankfulness. And we're going to delve into, in the next Lord's Days, the wonder of prayer. We praise God when we walk in obedience. John expresses that in 1 John 5, 2 and 3. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not grievous. That's what we teach our children. God's commandments are a delight. Your calling is to obey him. It's to pursue his will. And if you love your parents, if you love God, you want to obey. You must obey. And we hold them accountable then for that obedience. 
Obedience is the activity that shows forth praise and thanksgiving to Jehovah God. Now we know that our praise isn't going to add anything to God. God already is infinitely glorious. And that's not the idea at all of praising God or glorifying God. It's to acknowledge Him for the glory that He already has. It's to give Him the honor that is already His. And it's to acknowledge that He is the one to whom we owe our all. He's the one that accomplished the wonder of salvation. And He's the one for whom we live. And so we praise Him as we live in the consciousness of His divine majesty, His glory, His goodness, and His love for us. The one purpose in all of our good works, exalt and glorify the name of God. That's chief and central. Jehovah God reigns as king. And He's the one who in His mercy has taken hold of me and rescued me from that wide path that led to destruction. And he's placed me now on that narrow way that leads to glory. And he's my strength. And he's the one now that I look to him. And I praise him. And I show that gratitude to him as I live now unto him. Confessing my sin, pursuing his will, wearing that suit of righteousness in Jesus Christ, of holiness, and seeking to live faithfully and godly with regard to it. Showing that suit off to those around. Not boasting, but look at what my God has done for me. He's given me the righteousness of Jesus Christ. He's covered me with Christ's righteousness, and now my desire is to live unto Him. So that all around know, what is it that characterizes my life? to live unto God and to show forth his praise. And that's going to be demonstrated by my conduct in every aspect of my walk. All glory directed to God. The fruit for us and for others is also laid out here. But again, all of this directed to God, ultimately in his glory. That everyone may be assured in himself of his faith by the fruits thereof. Now that fruit is not going to be seen in great outward works. And Jesus makes that clear here. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? And in thy name have we cast out devils? And in thy name have done many wonderful works? Then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Matthew 7, verses 21 to 23. The fruit is seen in lives of sanctification, lives of holiness. It's evident from the heart, and that heart expresses itself outwardly by the issues of the heart that flow out of the heart. And what are those, what are those fruits? A godly sorrow for sin, a hungering and thirsting after righteousness, a love for the brethren, a love for the word of God, a love for the preaching of the pure gospel, a willingness to suffer for Christ's sake and to bear the reproach of Jesus Christ. These fruits result in the testimony that I'm in Christ, that I belong to Him. Good works are the inevitable fruit of the work of God in the heart of the believer as God realizes His eternal covenant with us. A good tree known by its good fruits. And we understand clearly what's meant here. Assurance belongs to the essence of faith. God gives us faith, and by that faith, we have this assurance. And that faith produces the fruit in our life of 
knowledge, and confidence. That true faith doesn't need outward props or outward support. It stands alone as our assurance. And that's what the fifth head in Article 10 of the Canons of Dort emphasize. This assurance, however, is not produced by any peculiar revelation contrary to or independent of the Word of God. There are some who say, well, that assurance is going to come from some event that's going to take place in your life. Something you do, maybe, or something that you experience? No, it's not produced. It springs from faith in God's promises. This is the fruit of faith. God has taken you, he's united united you to Christ by a true and living faith, and that faith now produces within you this blessed assurance. This faith gives you to know, I belong to Christ. I'm united to him. And the Spirit seals us unto the day of redemption so that that assurance of salvation is worked by the Holy Spirit in our hearts and it's worked in the way of sanctification. It's not worked in the way of ungodly living, in the way of pursuing the flesh. Now, it's not because of our sanctification. It's not because of our good works. It's in the way of. The only ground of our assurance is God's gracious eternal decree of election and the work of Jesus Christ on Calvary for me. That's the only ground. And on the basis of that, God now gives us faith. And that faith works in us this blessed assurance. I belong. And belonging, I see evidence of it in my desire to live unto him and to glorify him. It's for this reason that Peter writes in 2 Peter 1.10 that we're to give diligence to make our calling and election sure. Give diligence. Fight the good fight of faith. And as we fight, God gives us that confidence regarding our salvation, a confidence that rooted not in me, not how strong I am. As a matter of fact, I'm going to see my weaknesses again and again, but I'm going to know the wonder of his mercy. And as I confess my sin, I know I've been forgiven, and I know that I have peace with God, and the Holy Spirit works that assurance. I am a child of God. Abba, Father, God is my Father. And I live unto him. But then also that by our godly conversation, others may be gained to Christ. The greatest influence that we have is within our own homes, within and among those whom we're the closest to. Now, we can't save others. We know that. This is God's work. Those that continue in sin give evidence that they love the darkness more than the light. They're not converted by God if they continue in that unrepentant way. Their heart knows no sorrow for sin. They can't know the kingdom of God. And so God calls us now to be a witness by our conduct as well as by our words. And God will use his children in the midst of this world in that way. Now that's astounding. And it's difficult for us to understand in large measure just because of the fact that We don't interact so much with those who have come to Christ in later life. But interacting with those who have experienced conversion in later life, you will find out they all have a story. And their story all has to do with people that God used in their lives. God brought this person. God brought that influence. And God used it then marvelously and wondrously to bring them to see the wonder of his grace in Jesus Christ. That's 
our calling. As those who live now unto God, we desire to be that influence. We desire to have that witness. And we pray. We pray for the grace that God will be pleased to use our actions, our conduct for the good of others. That others will see in us evidence. We are different. We don't just profess Christ. We seek to live it for the glory and honor of God. And it's not our doing. We're not boastful. We're confessing this is God's work. This is all of grace. Jehovah God has rescued me and he's given me to know the victory that is in Jesus Christ alone. Now we understand similarly the struggle and the difficulty and the consequences of those who do not reflect that spiritual love and that grace. It's a horrible thing when someone says, I'm a Christian, then they give themselves over to a continued lifestyle of sin. They maintain a love affair with the devil, with a lie, with various sins in their lives, and they don't confess it. And that's why the consistory then is called to discipline such individuals, to labor patiently and long with such, and to pray for the grace by which God will work that fruit of salvation in their hearts and in their lives. Recognizing that our walk and our conduct is that which is being watched. And thankful for the opportunity to testify of the wonder and power of God's grace. What great things God has done for me. What wonders he's performed in my life. And now I seek to demonstrate and I seek to live out of that with a zeal for godliness, a zeal to pursue his will in my walk and my conduct. Knowing that Jehovah God is the one whom I serve and whom I love. Amen. Our Father in heaven, work in us that love and that delight. May we see the wonder of thy grace and may we be moved to give all praise, all honor, all glory to thee and cause that our lives may reflect that as we seek more faithfully to live in all of the various areas of our life, using our language more faithfully, living in marriage in a more godly manner, maintaining faithfulness with regard to the training of our children, laboring in our workplace diligently and faithfully, seeking to live unto thee and seeking to live as those who confess that we have been transformed by the renewing of our mind and that we are called now to show forth thy praise in all that we do, abounding as good trees in good fruit to the glory of thy name. Amen.